Derek Fildebrandt, publisher of the Western Standard. Today is July 26, 2023, and you're watching The Pipeline. Joining me, as always, is Western Standard opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. How are you, Nigel? Full of opinions. You know what they say about opinions? They're like uh, Two bits a holes. get a cup of coffee. Like a-holes. Everyone's got one. Well, that certainly is accurate. Or to call them in the, uh, my... the, the asshole editor. Yeah. Well, nobody's called me that yet. Well, maybe there's some letters to the editor that you've seen that I haven't. But, uh, one man who has been called that is Western Standard Senior Alberta uh, columnist Corey Morgan. Yeah, among other things, but I just look forward. That's to among it. the more polite things you get yes. called. Ah. All right. Uh, well, today we're going to be talking about a new poll released by Abacus Data showing the Conservatives way up, leading nearly uh, everywhere in Canada outside of Quebec, tied in Atlantic Canada, but leading absolutely everywhere else putting the Conservatives in majority government territory and Polyev on his way to the Prime Minister's office if we were to have an election yesterday. Too bad. Uh, we're going to talk about Justin Trudeau's new cabinet, a very significant uh, shuffle. I wouldn't even call it a shuffle. This is an almost new cabinet. Uh, bunch in, bunch out. Bunch of the other guys all moved around. Pretty much a new cabinet. We're going to talk about uh, the ins and outs of it, no pun intended. Um, the Department of Health in Canada, Health Canada, admits now what most of us have known for a very long time, that uh, the idea that COVID-19 came from a leak from the Wuhan COVID lab is no longer a conspiracy theory. It is now in the realm of respectable opinion. They haven't said it's proven to be. And Fair enough. But they've said it's uh, it's no longer a conspiracy theory. This is a legitimate, uh, it's a legitimate theory. I get it's, it's things, I guess, cease to be a conspiracy theory once the government says it's possible. And uh, we're going to talk about Ottawa's decision now. Uh, Steve, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo's decision to end or kill uh, oil subsidies that he's having trouble proving exist at all. There are things involving the government finance with the oil industry, but most of them don't seem to fit any reasonable definition of a subsidy. So we're going to talk about that with uh, Western Center business reporter Sean Polzer. Before we get started, though, I want to thank my favorite and I'm sure your favorite sponsor, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, a proud sponsor of uh, the pipeline and the Western Standard. The CSSA, uh, I've been a member of them for more than a decade because they are vital in defending the rights of gun owners in Canada. Uh, if you are a gun owner in Canada, it's vital that you become a member to defend your rights. Gun owners standing together to fight against Ottawa's attempts to uh, wrongfully take our otherwise rightful and lawful property from us. Um, these guys are doing more than any other organization, any other people in Canada to defend your right to own purchase and responsibly keep your firearms. So if you're not a member yet of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, go to CSSA-CILA.org right now or do what Corey and I do, just Google them and sign up as a member today. It's absolutely vital that uh, Gun Owners of Canada stand together to defend our rights. All right. Um, New poll, Abacus Data. Uh, the Conservatives under Pierre Polyev have taken a huge 10-point lead at 38%, over 28% for the Liberals, NDP back at 18%. Um, we've got uh, the PPC at four, 
the greens at five and I think the block at seven. Um, Conservatives got a good lead in BC, massive lead in Alberta, massive lead in Saskatchewan, good lead in Manitoba, uh, significant lead in Ontario, tied in Atlantic Canada, and a respectable but definitely not leading third place in Quebec. So if there's an election today, they could win the most seats in every province, uh, arguably, except for Quebec, and maybe a few spots in the Maritimes, depending on how the numbers break down, because they put all four provinces there together. Um, leading in all age groups, very rare for conservatives to lead among younger voters, normally conservative voters trend older, uh, and they tend towards men. Well, he's got a huge lead of 14% uh, among men, uh, but even a lead of 4% uh, among women over the liberals. Um, so this is a big poll. Polls, of course, are a snapshot in time. They don't tell you what's going to happen. They're telling you what would probably happen during the time that the poll is taken. Uh, we'll start with you, Corey. Um, Polyev has recovered the conservative numbers a bit from uh, where O'Toole had them, but they've been pretty stagnant until fairly recently. Now we're seeing some big moves. Uh, it's a bit surprising to me because there's not a ton going on in the news other than Justin Trudeau's attempts to save the news by killing it. Uh, what would you suspect is driving the surge? Uh, well, I think there's two things. One, though, with that demographic shift, we're seeing younger people looking at conservatives, I think is the affordability. That's hitting them hard. I mean, Justin Trudeau can keep talking about how he's making it better for middle-income families and up-and-comers, but the truth is he isn't. Housing is out of reach for a lot of people. Food is increasingly expensive all of the time. And whether or not the Trudeau government could or would do anything about it is, is irrelevant. I think they're taking out their ire on the government that's, that's in power at this time, especially when you see other scandals such as $6,000 hotel rooms for the prime minister and, and the governor general living lavishly. Like these are the things that will you know, resonate with a younger person thinking this is a government that is not connected with what's really a serious problem for me. And uh, they're starting to look towards the conservatives. Uh, the other aspect, I think, is finally some of the Chinese interference scandal. It's just been months and months of it pounding, but it's, it's slowly but surely been uh, eroding in that liberal support with the older categories. Nigel, um, no surprise conservatives leading in Alberta and Saskatchewan or Manitoba, even B.C., even though the lead in B.C. isn't huge because there it's a competitive three, three and a half party race, conservatives, liberals, NDP, and to an extent, the Green, at least in some regional mm -hmm. areas. Uh, but Ontario, Conservatives have won it before, but it's generally not their strongest spot. And Atlantic Canada, always been tough for Conservatives in the modern iteration of the Conservative Party post-2003, uh, tied. Mm -hmm. um, and, a, and a respectable third place in Quebec, where they might pick up a, a handful of seats. Let's talk regionally. Um, what, do you think would be what do you think would be the main impetus driving an increase in conservative support beyond its traditional base in the West and rural Ontario. So here's one of the things that happens. Before I address your question directly, I just want to point out that those Ontario figures, they oversampled in Ontario because they weren't sure. They say this in their report. So, I think Ontario and Atlantic Canada, they yeah, oversampled. both of them, in fact. Yeah, because they're probably like not so leading it at first. I actually have more confidence in those Ontario numbers than I typically have in any poll of 2,500 people sort of distributed across the country on a prorated basis. They've gone in where they're at least certain, oversampled, come out with a result. That result probably is a pretty accurate snapshot. So if you think they're up in Ontario and running even in the Maritimes, 
believe it. They probably are. Now, you ask me why. Well, it's probably got to do with the slow, steady, water-on-a-stone erosion of trust in this government over a period of years. There was a time when it didn't matter what the Liberals did, didn't matter what the Prime Minister did, everybody just glossed over it. But there comes a point when something happens, let's say the Chinese electoral interference uh, for ex uh, allegations, for example, and people remember that they didn't like something else. Oh man, what was it? The, maybe it was, oh, I didn't like the convoy. I don't like how that went. I didn't like how, oh, the COVID restrictions, you know, and there is a range of opinions, but some of them are going to go back and people forget specifics, but in the end, they pick up a feeling about a government and about, or about a person. And after that, there is actually no coming back. Then it doesn't matter what they do. Look, you've got a cabinet shuffle here, and you've got a bunch of people who nobody's heard of replacing a bunch of people who nobody's heard of. We all know that what happens in that particular government is all the decisions are taken by about five people, and then the, the decisions are found out to the ministries, and it's up to the people who've just been shuffled to, uh, to, to action them. Well, got a new group of people that nobody's heard of actioning government actioning decisions taken by the same old five people. Well, you know, I think people have just finally recognized that whatever they say, nothing really changes. They've had enough. Something new. Change for change for sake. Uh, one of the big things stood out for me, I, I mentioned, but I want to dive into it now, is demographically, not just geographically, demographically. Mm -hmm. um, in aggregate, you know, Voting for right-leaning parties tends to be among older people, middle age and older. You uh, have maybe more traditional values for older voters and among more middle-aged voters. Well, you've got to pay taxes. All of a sudden, government has a cost attached to it. Oh, it's not all free stuff. I'm paying for this. I, I care about how much I'm paying in taxes, and I care about how those taxes are paid. It's one reason voters tend to, people move to the right as they get older. Younger voters, well, government's only ever provided free stuff and hasn't taken a substantial portion of your money at that point. It's another reason people tack a bit left when, they, when they're younger. The Conservatives are leading among every single age group now, including younger voters. When Trudeau for, when he was majority in 2015, he didn't just win younger voters, he annihilated the demographic. He brought them out in record numbers and they voted overwhelmingly liberal and for Justin Trudeau. They're now voting conservative, not a massive numbers, but I mean, even breaking even with younger voters would be devastating for the liberals. Um, among uh, the two sexes, if I could say that, uh, you know, traditionally conservatives. There, there will be letters. Yep. Carry on. There will be letters, complaints. Uh, send it to uh, our, our complaints file, uh, fu at westernstandard.news. Um, you know, generally conservatives are stronger among men than women. Um, and vice versa with the liberals and more leftist-leaning parties. Um, the conservatives are still stronger with men than they are with women, 14% versus 4%, but that 4, that four is still a 4% lead over the liberals. Justin Trudeau is not winning women. Uh, he's got no shot. Um, Nigel, uh, what, what do you think would be moving those numbers on the on the demographic side? Again, it's it's... A general boredom and dismay at the at the liberals. 
I, that's a really interesting point you brought forward there about the women. I mean, it wasn't a month ago that we had a big story about how Oliver is not uh, connecting with women. All women don't like him, so forth and so on. And we did some stuff on that. Um, well, here, here we are. I, I guess enough women do like him to give him a majority among women. Isn't oh, no, he's not a majority among women. He's leading among women. Leading among women. No one has a majority even among men. Uh, well, but it's a, it's a lead because it's a, a lead among women. Sure, yeah. you know, plurality or something. Yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, don't forget who pays the bills in a household. Nine times out of ten, it's the woman, the wife, the partner, who, however, whatever she's called. Women are very, very uh, knowledgeable about prices and things that Mr. Trudeau probably knows only by secondhand information. What, what's, a, what's a pound of butter? What's a pint of milk? How much? You know, and uh, they are seeing the truth of what Oliver has been pushing out for several months now that this government has no control over prices. They, they have caused the value of money to shrink. And while that's an abstract concept in itself, when you go to the supermarket and when you look at what stuff costs in the aisles and you come out with a bag of groceries that should have cost $35 and it's, it, it's over a hundred, you think something's wrong here. Women see that up close, personal, every time they go into the store. That's what's working for Oliver and not working for Mr. Trudeau. Okay, well, we'll shift gears now to to the new cabinet, uh, I was worried you were going to jump, you know, uh, anticipate where we were going there. You said talk cabinet for a bit, but you didn't, you didn't spoil it. Um, I never spoil things. I wouldn't even call this a cabinet shuffle. Technically, I guess we technically call it a shuffle, but it's uh, more of a dance than a shuffle. There is big changes in the cabinet. Seven minister, new ministers in, seven mm -hmm. old ministers out. Um, some changes, and then among... Those who didn't get moved out, only 10 of the remaining ministers actually stayed where they were. Uh, a majority of the cabinet is now different today than it was yesterday. Um, Bill Blair has been moved to defense. That's a, that's a major move. The uh, woman who was the defense minister, uh, Anita Anand. 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 On the treasury. Yeah. Uh, she's, yeah, she's been moved to treasury board president. Um, <clears throat> They're both pretty senior, but it's a bit of a demotion. Um, I mean, she, she was a bit weird, kind of wokeifying the military. One institution that if, if there's one institution that should not be painted woke, it's probably your military. Um, but more her ideology aside, she's been among, let's say, the least incompetent of the Trudeau ministers. But she's been moved. So curious. Um yeah, so Bill Blair in the defense, Sean Frazier to something called housing and infrastructure. I guess we have something called housing. So, I mean, that should maybe, you know, that's a political message that's on the government's radar. Um, in Alberta here, one of the few liberal MPs, Randy Boissonneau, has moved to employment, workforce, uh, employment, workforce something. Um, Pablo Rodriguez, out of heritage. I, I, I would hope that's a good thing. And this is the guy responsible for Bill C-18, designed to bail out the legacy media and has resulted in an Armageddon among the media businesses now, including and especially the independents. He's been replaced by uh, Pascal, Pascal St. Ange, 
or something. Uh, I'm not sure how to say that. But uh, as usual, uh, I've always said this, the heritage ministry, particularly liberal governments and sometimes in conservative governments is always reserved for a Quebecer. Um, so some, some pretty big moves here. Uh, Corey, what, do you, what, are the, what are the big highlights of uh, the new cabinet for you? Well, I think part of the highlight is telling me that the liberals internals are saying the same thing as the polls we saw. Like this is midway through a term, it's summer. I would have expected a shuffle now. Now is the ideal time to do it. But the extent and size of that shuffle, uh, some senior ministers, I mean, weren't laterally moved like so many others. Some are totally out. Uh, Marco Mendicino. We expected that. I mean, they were waiting for the next opportunity to get rid of that claim. That was a nice one. Uh, Lametti. I'm not sure it'll change much. But. Lametti kind of surprised me. I could see them moving him, but maybe it would have been lateral. But no, he's out. Uh, Carolyn Bennett. Uh, again, she's getting a little past her expiry date, I guess you could say. But all the same, she's a, a senior liberal member. And she's out. She's not in cabinet whatsoever anymore. Likewise with uh, Omar Al-Gabra. So, you know, those are some senior positions. I mean, the main ones are still sticking with it. You've still got uh, Freeland and, and a few of the five, kind of as Nigel was talking about, around the prime minister. But he did some symbolic saying, we're flushing some of the old guard out. And I think he's going to try and say, we're different now. They're acknowledging that they weren't doing well. It's the new and Coke they're trying liberals. to refresh themselves. But yeah, all they're doing is turning a dirty shirt inside out. But that's what they're trying to do with this, I think. Well, I mean, this was the old guard that was so fresh and bright because it's 2015, you know, and I guess things didn't work out too well for a lot of them. Uh, you know, you can only build a cabinet with the wood you've got. So he doesn't really have the choices that everybody would think he does. Mm -hmm. um, I, think it, I think just as significant as the ones that have been moved out are the ones that have stayed right where they were. And they include some of the people who, I, my my view are probably responsible for some of the most distress that Canadians have suffered in the last couple of years. I mean, there you've got um, uh, Stephen Gubault. He is, he is in place. And by the way, his and um, Wilkinson's remaining in their posts at Environment and Energy and Natural Resources. I, that, I think, is a significant thing for Alberta. I don't know whether you're coming back mm -hmm. to that. But, um, but, you know, Mr. Carbon Tax, okay? Carbon tax is what is driving up the price of everything. Uh, that no, it's and, one of the things. That's one of the things. That and, uh, and uh, the inflation, which Christia Freeland, as Minister of Finance, is still overseeing. So, I mean, these are the people who've made the, the cost of living that much more expensive for Canadians. They're still there. And they're part of the very small clique that I'm referring to. And I talk about five, you know, maybe it's four, maybe it's six. But there's a small clique that makes these decisions. Nothing really changes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always, the prime minister is the government. The premiers in the provinces are the government. Ministers, for the most part, are there to execute orders, not, not give orders. But there's always exceptions. The fact that Stephen Gilbo is still Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, uh, I think that says something. Trudeau cleaned house in a sense here, but the guys he leaves here says, I've got confidence in you. I like what you're doing. Keep doing it. That's kind of a doubling down. Wilkinson, who's not for resources, gets energy added to the title of his portfolio. I'm not sure how much that'll actually change or not, but significantly haven't had a federal energy minister in quite some time. Um, maybe talk about those two, uh, Wilkinson and Gilbo. 
What does this mean for the energy industry and for Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular? It's not good. It's not good at all. And I mean, you know, we've said it a lot and it's worth saying Gilbo is an extremist. He, he was a, a Greenpeace activist. He was arrested. It does show that whatever flexibility Trudeau is willing to go into to try and save his skin in the next election, whenever that may be, he's still fixated on being the climate change crusader and that being his legacy. So he's got the, the fiercest of climate attack dogs in there working on his behalf and environment. And as you said, Wilkinson is just mandated. He'll do as he's told. He's not there to represent energy. He's there to control. And when the case of Alberta and Saskatchewan stifle it. So the, the, those are very significant in that they're staying where they are. That part of the government's mandate is not going to be changing a bit. Uh, another switcheroo of note is uh, Marco Mendicino. Um, I mean, Trudeau politically had to drop this guy from cabinet, I think. Uh, it was the right decision to drop this guy from cabinet. He is a proven liar multiple times. Here's the trick in politics. You can lie. You just can't get obviously caught. You have to have some kind of plausible deniability. He has been caught time and time again and wildly incompetent, even from the perspective of a left progressive just screwing up files. You know, you had uh, the Paul Bernardo uh, debacle. You've had him screw up on the gun file, pissing off uh, gun owners who are not voting liberal anyway, but doing it in such a clumsy way politically that it's even angered people who want to take away uh, the rights of gun owners. Um, so Marco Mendicino, not just shuffled, but out of cabinet outright, replaced by Dominic LeBlanc. And that's an interesting move, because Dominic LeBlanc if there's one person, okay, there might be two cabinet ministers with real power outside of the prime minister. One is uh, Christia Freeland, deputy premier, uh, prime minister and minister of finance, and Dominic LeBlanc, who was, uh, I think, might still be the house leader. Uh, no, it's been switched. Oh, he's not house leader anymore? Okay. Well, he was house leader, um, probably minister without portfolio or something, but in cabinet, but not really yeah. responsible for ministry. <clears throat> he's now... Minister of Public Safety, uh, Democratic Reform, and some other minor file that won't get paid attention to. But public safety, that's a major one, and that's responsible for taking our guns. Um, he, he's still a liberal, but he is a more competent minister. He is likely to be able to at least tie his shoelaces up and put his pants on before he goes to the office in the morning. Which, I guess my question is, is this a bad thing? Were we better with an incompetent minister trying to take our guns away, or are we better with a more competent minister who might under, might come to understand things better, or is he just more dangerous because he's not a fool? Depends how you define competence, really, doesn't it? If you uh, if you take stake out the position that all guns are bad, then you can have somebody like uh, well, it's not to beat the policy of it. You know, I, I don't want to beat the policy of it. No, I think we're in agreement on. On the, on the actual policy of it, but is it more no, dangerous my, my to My point have... is that somebody like LeBlanc is likely to make the call that all guns are not bad, that there are some that can be, as they would, according to their frame of reference, can be safely left in the hands of the, the hunters and the sportsmen, the indigenous people, the folks who like to go to gun clubs and so forth. And um, I would expect... Uh, Perhaps a redefinition of what is a 
what is a dangerous weapon in the hands of the public from well, somebody who was sensible? But they, well, they've never been able to define it. Well, look, uh, there are smart people with dumb ideologies all the time. Look how many university professors are Marxists. They're smart in a sense. They might be competent in some mm. sense of their job, but they still have a crazy ideology and set of political views. And some people might say the same about us. Um, so uh, let's just assume for the sake of it that Dominic LeBlanc has the same idea about guns. He shares liberal ideology, progressive oh, ide left oh. progressive ideology on guns. Let's just assume. And I think that's probably a fairly safe idea going in. Uh, Marco Mendicino wasn't a Stephen Gilbo radical. He was just, he has urban progressive left views and ideology on guns. So I, I think it's probably a relatively good bet. Also remember, it's the prime minister setting the ideology in the tone here, not the minister. Corey, do you think he's more dangerous or less dangerous because he's probably not an idiot? Well, yeah, if, assuming he's going to follow the same ideology, he's most definitely more dangerous. He won't step on his own tongue. He won't discredit himself, and that will make it easier to sell those kinds of policies to the public and, and get them through the House of Commons without uh, too much of a mess. So uh, as a firearms owner, if he's going to follow that same ideology, I would be much more nervous with LeBlanc on the file than uh, with Mendicino making a, an abject mess of it. And, uh, oh, you had something? I just take the view that um, he will probably leave some on the table in order to get others that he that they really think are, in their frame of reference, dangerous. But be more pragmatic, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I, I could be wrong. And uh, I won't get into it, but just uh, another one of the big uh, dismissals from Cabinet is Omar Al-Galbra. Um, notable. He is dropped from cabinet because he couldn't make the trains run on time. Uh, so. Well, there you go. If you have a fascist government and you can't make the trains run on time, you've got to get rid of somebody, haven't you? If you're going to be an authoritarian, yeah. at least make the, <laughs> the trains, trains run, run on, on time. time. Yeah. You that, if, you can't, if you can't do that, you may as well just be free anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who know your Mussolini, that was the reference. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, well, we'll kind of stick around Ottawa on this one here. Um, so everyone who's been paying attention for the last, I don't know, three and a half years, whatever it was since COVID became a thing, um, it became fairly obvious fairly early that there was at least a very strong chance that COVID came from the experimental COVID lab in Wuhan province in China. Uh, now, there have been conspiracy theories around it, people saying, matter-of-factly, it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm skeptical of that. I don't think we really know because the Chinese government's been so opaque around this stuff, intentionally opaque, uh, or that it was intentionally released. That is also extremely unlikely. I'm not sure what interest the Chinese would have in releasing that in their own backyard and devastating themselves worse than anyone else got hurt, creating all sorts of unrest. The Chinese Communist Party now has to more or less tolerate protests because anti-lockdown protests aren't just for Alberta. Even China got them too. And they uh, did not send in the tanks Tiananmen Square style to kill them for doing it, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, but it was the idea that COVID came from a Wuhan lab. Ah, we can see this on YouTube now because the government agrees. YouTube, those of you watching on YouTube, this would be censored. What we're saying right now, one week ago, if we said this here, it would be censored by uh, the bureaucrats working for the government at YouTube. 
but today we can say it because the Federal Department of Health now admits that it is uh, not a conspiracy theory, that it is uh, the precise origin, while not yet known, is uh, it now recognizes the significant possibility that it came from a, quote, laboratory incident, which is government speak for the Wuhan COVID lab. Um, health minister at the time during COVID, when this was a thing, a reporter asked her if we can trust the information coming from China. And she says, uh, kind of referring to the theory that it came from the lab, she says, you're promoting conspiracy theories and we need to work with China and blah, 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 blah. Very Chinese. They didn't want to offend the Chinese. I wonder why the liberals were so hesitant to offend the Chinese Communist Party. No idea why three and a half years ago they could have been uh, so hesitant to do so. But she called everyone discussing the possibility that the Chinese might not be, the Chinese Communist Party might not be totally, completely untoward um, uh, a conspiracy theory. Well, the Department of Health now says that is one of the leading potential causes of the incident. Uh, so, sorry with you, Nigel. Uh, conspiracy theory yesterday, government policy today. Um, the government hasn't made any fanfare around this, but this was in an, kind of an internal document obtained by Block Locks reporter. Uh, thoughts? Well, you know. The sad thing is that um, people have suffered hugely because of a government that would not accept the possibilities. We were told to get vaccinated because the vaccines were safe and effective. Turned out that some were safer than others and not, none of them were totally effective. We were told that, well, we could possibly be a lab leak in Wuhan. Well. You know, they did what Mr. Mendocino did, didn't they? And uh, because this stuff is admitted now, but it cannot have been unknown three years ago. And in fact, I often go back to the, the, the briefing that Dr. Theresa Tan, Canada's chief public health officer, gave to the House of Commons Health Committee two weeks before the pandemic was declared in uh, Canada, a public state of public health emergency declared. So much of that information that she gave those people at that time, including the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of masks, the priority of, of uh, protecting vulnerable populations, principally older people, that the thing was known to have a greater impact on older people than on younger people, all of this was known, and yet they went and did what they did anyway. Now, a conspiracy theory might be why they did that, but they were wrong, and they wouldn't admit it. And those people who are now calling for a public inquiry into the whole COVID incident are on the right track. It's great that we had the, uh, you know, the private enterprise one, but nobody's paying any attention. This time, it's time for a, a proper royal commission on how the government handled that whole issue. Corey, uh, Paul Wells uh, had an interesting column on his Substack yesterday uh, about the need for a public inquiry here. The uh, thing was uh, the British Medical Journal uh, as, as their main editorial demanding the need for it. Most countries have had some kind of public inquiry around their response to COVID. Now, I imagine these things would be fairly sanitized and 
would probably not deal very much with any violations of people's liberties and freedoms, uh, but probably deal more on just a technical, more bureaucratic level. But so far, uh, the liberals have refused to have a public inquiry. They generally just don't like public inquiries, uh, regardless of the evidence. But, um, you know, they've said they've committed. We're going to review it. But they've never said. And they just keep on stating every six months or so they get asked by reporters, oh, are we going to have an inquiry? Well, we're going to review it. Have you even begun to review it? No, they haven't done anything. What hesitancy do you think the liberals would have in a public inquiry in this? Because they would get to frame the terms of reference and would probably pretty strictly, I would imagine if the liberals did this, probably pretty strictly exclude any issues around the authoritarian tendencies of the government politically, around freedoms, probably just deal with this from a purely bureaucratic public health perspective. Why do you think they're so hesitant to do this? I think some of these threads tie together and, uh, you know, into another inquiry that they really want to avoid. I mean, there were a lot of conspiracy theories all over the place. There, There really were some of where this virus came from, when it was emerging, when it was happening. Ironically, the one that was the theory that was most plausible, evidence-based, was the one they wanted to shut down and call a conspiracy theory. I mean, my theory at the time was that it was actually from an undercooked bat sandwich in the lunchroom of the Wuhan lab. <laughs> I was close, but not quite there. But that's, You're that's, mixing your theory. Well, I was, I was getting in, in the With right direction. The of pangolin. But, I mean, the reticence in entertaining that particular one, as you kind of mentioned before, well, that starts getting a little close to insulting the Chinese Communist Party or its competency. And they shy away from that. We know darn well that there's some ties and some influence, but the degree of which and where and how something might come out in an inquiry. As he said, they typically tend to manage to mask everything coming out anyways. But you might get somebody who finally says, you know what, it's time to spill some beans. You know, this is the correspondence I got saying why we don't entertain this potential scenario and this was why. And they really, there's some why going on out there that they do not want us to see. And they're fighting every kind of inquiry with all their might. And I suspect there's a thread here that leads over to the Chinese thread that is just turning into that big mess they want to keep a lid on. All right. Uh, well, we're going to bring in Western Standard business reporter Sean Polzer right now. Uh, Sean has been covering in a fair bit of detail, uh, almost daily, uh, the move from still Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo uh, to end what he calls uh, oil subsidies. Um, now, Sh- Sean, uh, <laughs> this is a confusing one. Uh, subsidies are I mean, they can take different forms, uh, but generally it involves the government giving businesses money uh, that they in one form or another can keep. Uh, The federal government has financial relationships, obviously, with oil companies. They pay taxes and there are different things. But uh, Stephen Gilbo has had some, he's been very adamant he's going to kill subsidies to oil and gas, but he's had a hard time defining what these are, hasn't he? (laughs) To say the least. Um, normally you, you hand subsidies out to money losing industries, not the ones that generate about 10% of your gross domestic product. Um, he was in Calgary on Wednesday to talk to some oil leaders and some business leaders and, you know, kind of walked away and said one thing. And then on Monday, you know, it initially, it seemed like quite a shock when he come out uh, with, uh, eliminating oil and gas subsidies and, uh, you know, kind of made my head spin, but. 
you know, the fact is, is that there really are none. And uh, it kind of depends on what your definition of a subsidy is. Well, I, I suppose uh, if your definition of a subsidy, I think the definition of a subsidy is giving money to a business if you don't like it. So if you're giving money to the Toronto Star, to the Calgary Herald, to the National Post, it's not a subsidy. It's, uh, I don't know. Um, a bailout. Democracy yeah. bonus. Support. It's support. It's investment. It's investment and support. If you like it, it's a subsidy if you don't. Uh, but there is no such money in that way going to the oil and gas industry. There are things like, you know, um, capital cost allowance that allows, uh, you know, energy firms to defer taxes for capital reasons so that they can actually do capital intensive investments and, uh, and be allowed to pay the taxes on that later. Um, uh, is that something they're trying to define as a subsidy? Well, no. So, um, the, 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 the Thing that it pivots on is something called an unabated subsidy. So the idea is, is um, a project that doesn't try to abate carbon emissions. So uh, in the last budget here, we have um, 40 to 50 percent uh, capital cost allowances and rebates for carbon capture. Well, those aren't being touched. So because they abate emissions. So he was pressed to put a dollar figure on exactly what these subsidies were and exactly what they are. And he was completely unable to do it because the, there are no direct subsidies for upstream oil and gas direct production. Um, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers put out the statement, said that they were generally aligned on the policy. And I kind of thought, you know, <laughs> like that, that seems odd. Yeah, they're aligned with it because there are none. You know, they, you know, and they've said that there are no direct subsidies for oil and gas production in Canada, period, right? But Jibol, he has to play to his audience of his um, supporters, these environmental supporters, you know, the Birkenstock crowd in Ontario and Quebec. And he's taking it with him to the G20 because he wants to hold up Canada as some kind of a bright light. Uh, you know, we're going to be the first country in the world to eliminate unabated oil and gas subsidies, right? Well, we have none. So we particularly, you know, yeah. it's funny. Abated the only subsidies we do have subsidies. are abated subsidies. There's tons of government subsidies, both from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ottawa for oil and gas companies that are doing things to reduce their emissions. So, okay, uh, maybe for carbon capture and storage, for converting to hydro, uh, sorry, into hydrogen, things like that. There's a lot of subsidies there, but there doesn't really seem to be that much in the way of subsidies that are so-called unabated, just supporting oil and gas. In fact, uh, the only time the federal government really significantly subsidized uh, the, the oil and gas industry was when the last Trudeau was prime minister and they tried to nationalize the industry and they ended end up subsidizing it because it kept on dying when exposed to what they were doing. Um, uh, Corey, um, what's the win here? Because there's there doesn't actually seem to be anything he's going to do. You can say they're canceled, but there doesn't appear to be really anything he could do. And, and it's really murky because it's like, well, does this mean... They're not, they don't qualify for any subsidies that apply to all industries, like, say, the Canada Summer Jobs Program that you get no matter if you're making widgets or anything. Like, well, he, what, what's he going to do here uh, to actually say he got, he's not subsidizing them anymore? I, I don't know. Well, I guess he'll just have to say it stopped. 
which is great. The win is, is with the energy sector. He's done what we've been unable to counter for the last 15 years. When you're arguing with people, keep saying, we're holding up your industry. We're shoring it up. We're giving subsidies into it. And they could never answer where they were. Well, now well, Minister Gail Bowles says they're gone. So it's done. Don't worry about it. It's over. The subsidies are finished. We all win. We're happily going home. And of course, nothing technically has changed. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, Mr. Gilbo was actually not at the swearing-in this morning. Mm -hmm. He had gone to another of these hot air fests that they love to go to. So as he goes, he is able to say in his speech, we have stopped subsidies to the oil industry. Well, nobody there is going to ask him what subsidies, how many, how much, what does it really mean? He gets a nice clean soundbite and farms that out to the people that he feels he needs to to uh, influence and stay sweet with, and he's happy, and I guess, as the there were no subsidies in the first place, so none got stopped, so is the oil industry. So, Sean, you know, you can't, I, I don't, you don't know inside this guy's head for sure, but is there going to be, is there going to be any change in policy that you would predict? Would you predict there'll be any actual change in federal policy over the so-called oil subsidies or is it going to be literally nothing changes and he pronounces now there are no more subsidies well he's talking about uh, public financing for things like uh the trans mountain pipeline that they actually own um so putting up loan guarantees to get the thing finished because it's about 75 percent in the ground and they're having you know a hard time pushing it over to the finish line so, um, uh, you know, uh, if, if they really wanted to pull uh, loan guarantees and public financing for oil and gas projects, I suppose that would be the place to start. Except they um, own the damn thing. They own it. So, yeah, um, they would just be shooting themselves in the foot. Um, I don't think that this is really going to amount to much. I think um, if they really wanted to push it, they, you know, they might try to get the Canada pension plan to divest its oil and gas holdings. Um, I don't know if you could call that a subsidy or some kind of form of public financing, but uh, it would definitely right. have an impact on everybody's so. RSP in this country because everybody who has CP in this country owns oil. And that's just the fact. Well, this might be the least terrible thing Stephen Gilbo's managed to do, or arguably, as Corey argues, maybe good, maybe. Maybe the Greenies will finally say, hey, there are no more subsidies. We killed it. Well, they were always sure. pointing that gun about these subsidies at us, and now he's shown that it was a blank. So they're going to have to find something new to attack, which I'm sure they will. But uh, I just wish the Liberals had an equal zeal for getting rid of subsidies for other industries. Bombardier? Like, I don't know, the legacy media. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful, eh? Okay. Uh, Sean, uh, Nigel, Corey, thank you very much for uh, being here today. I thank all of you for joining us uh, on the Western Standards Pipeline. If you're not yet a member, you need to sign up right now. Uh, it's only $10 a month or $100 a year for unlimited access to all Western Standard content. Uh, the Western Standard is one of the last few beacons of free, of, uh, free enterprise and uh, free press in Canada. Uh, as well, if, even if you don't want to sign up, go at least sign up for our free newsletter, uh, you know, morning uh, newsletter at westernstandard.news. We are about to be turned off of Google and turned off of Facebook because the federal government passed Bill C-18 to try and give another additional bailout to the old legacy print and broadcast media, and it's now blown up in everybody's faces. Um, 
So if you want to stay in contact with us, you still want to get our content, go to Westernstead.news, sign up for our morning newsletter so we can keep you informed. Thank you very much for joining us today, and God bless. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley is down $9 at $4.26. Feed wheat is down $14 at $4.22. And corn is down $10 at $406 per ton. In the milling wheat market, September Minneapolis futures lost 34.5 cents at $8.97, with local hardware spring bid for August movement at $10.40 per bushel. In the oil seeds, nearby canola futures are up $8.30 at $832.30 per ton, with delivered values for August movement at $19 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at $0.34 cents per pound, and yellow peas remain at $11.50 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle added $0.60 cents at $178.90 per hundredweight. I'm David Lee at Marketplace Commodities, Accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.